before we get exactly there, we have a couple more sermons left in our, our Love Without Borders mini-series. And uh, as I mentioned last week, the, the purpose of this series is towards a biblical response to displaced people. And uh, I got a little good-natured ribbing on that uh, after the sermon. It sounded a little bit like a thesis paper that I was writing or something, but... Um, but uh, that is really the point, and I just want to emphasize it again, that it's the towards is intentional because it is moving towards something that would, uh, the answer to how the church and the biblical response to displaced people uh, does not begin and end with a single sermon. And uh, of course, it needs to be biblical because we're God's people, and it's a response to displaced people. Last Sunday, we talked mainly about the refugee situation, and I tried to apply it specifically to the Syrian refugee situation, for those of you that were here will remember that. You can catch it on the podcast or the website, but tried to apply it there. But I didn't want to use the word refugee. I wanted to say displaced people because we know that people can be displaced for a lot of different reasons. And so in this mini-series, really what we're looking at is a biblical response to people who are displaced for many reasons. In other words, it's a... Uh, and really what we're doing here is theology. And I didn't want to say that right off the bat because I didn't want to scare you. Uh, but really what's going on here is we're creating a theology of mercy. And to create a theology of mercy, we, we started with examining the heart of God and the instruction of God and the example of God's people. That was last week. And we looked at the warnings and the encouragements that God gave us. And the conclusion of last week was that, that God cares deeply for displaced people, that his heart is full of compassion for those who are displaced, perhaps most clearly seen in this verse that we used in Isaiah 16, 3 to 4, he says, Give counsel and grant justice. Make your shade like night at the height of noon. Shelter the outcast. Do not reveal the fugitive. Let the outcasts of Moab, and we dwelled on that a little bit, realizing that Moab was the bitter enemy of Israel uh, for generations. He says, Let the outcasts of Moab even sojourn among you and be a shelter to them from the destroyer. And when the oppressor is no more... And destruction has ceased, and he who tramples underfoot has vanished from the land. And so there's this instruction, there's this heart, and we built off a lot of verses from that. But here I think most clearly we see that God's instruction and his heart to his people is to care for and to show mercy to those who are oppressed, who have destruction in their land, even enemies, even to those who may consider them to be enemies. And so they are to protect and they are to show mercy. And we know that God made his compassion known most completely in us, even though we were enemies of God, right? That, that we were foreign to him, that we were citizens of a far nation, long way from God's nation, that we were citizens of darkness rather than light. And he gave his only son to die for us as the ultimate act of mercy. And so likewise, we are to show mercy to others, even others that some might consider enemies, And so our theology of mercy really starts there with an understanding of God's heart and compassion. It starts with open hearts, right? And that's the first sort of piece of the puzzle to a theology of mercy that we develop here as Christians and as believers and want to express at Lakeside. But there's more pieces to the puzzle. It doesn't just begin and end only with God's heart of compassion and his instruction to show compassion uh, to all people. And as I was very careful to explain last week, that, that it's towards a biblical response. And, and, and one message isn't the whole response. And one sermon is not our whole answer. And, and the biblical response to mercy is not simple. And it's not simplistic. 
and neither is the practice of showing mercy simple or simplistic. And I get that, that there isn't just one Bible verse that's going to tell us how we're going to act in every situation. And so as a world and as a nation and even as a town here in Halliburton, we're wrestling with the complexity of how do we show mercy to people? What do we do with our social justice systems? How do we treat uh, our elderly? How do we treat our veterans? How do we put that in context with Syrian refugees coming into town? Or uh, how do we put that in context with the poor that we have? And uh, are there priorities to mercy? And are there limits to mercy? And all of those things that, that, that a theology of mercy has to consider. And so we have to look at the larger picture of mercy and understand that even God's theology of mercy or God's mercy is not simplistic. It's not just one answer uh, is a, a blank prescription for everything. And so we're going to look at that today. We're going to look at how we evolve our theology of mercy, starting as we rightly should from the compassion that God has and instructs us to show. But then what else we take into consideration? What are the... Uh, not competitive values, but what are the complementary values to mercy that guide us? Let me just pray as I try to unpack this. I need prayer. Father God, we're looking into your word now, and we're looking into it to, to see your heart and know your heart, which we have, and we know it's full of compassion. But we're also looking for your wisdom and for your guidance and your instruction on how we, as flawed and faulty, fallen people are meant to apply a perfect mercy and a perfect compassion. And Lord, we know that we have to apply it to a flawed and fallen people as well. And so Lord, we we honestly come with open hearts and open minds to see what you would teach us and how we um, make sense of mercy and compassion in a very complex world. And so, Lord, help us to be like children before you. Help us to uh, set our own agendas aside and our own thoughts and maybe a lifetime of living a certain way and remember what it's like to go into kindergarten for the first time. And so help us just to be children before you and learn what you would teach. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. And so today what I want to propose is the second piece of that puzzle in putting together this theology of, of ministry is we have to get a handle on and we have to understand um, that there are competing values. And again, I said competing there, and I don't mean them to be competing. There are, there are complementary values which we have to apply to mercy. And what it boils down to today and what I want to look at is, is the easiness in our heart to immediately divide people who are needing mercy and displaced people, whether they're displaced economically or displaced relationally or displaced socially um, or displaced relationally, emotionally, whatever, however they've become displaced or alienated or marginalized, that it's easy for us and we immediately begin to put them into two categories, those that are deserving and those that are undeserving. And and that's what a lot of the conversation about this idea of compassion and mercy has been even in our own uh, community here lately. You know, whether it's at Tim Hortons in the coffee shop, just sort of overhearing conversations, people talking about it, or whether it's talking about what the government's doing and their different policies. Um, You know, it's in the editorial pages of our newspapers. Um, Maybe worst of all, it's on Facebook. Uh, You know, Facebook is not a place for a nuanced conversation. Uh, on anything, let alone mercy and compassion. 
Um, but we're having these discussions, and, and largely these discussions come down, and it's so easy for us in our flesh to, to divide people into these categories. There are people who are deserving of mercy and people who are maybe undeserving of mercy. That there are people who deserve mercy or, or should be a higher priority in mercy and people who are a lower priority of mercy. And we have to start to think coming out of a sermon like last week where God's heart is so full of compassion for our neighbors and our strangers and our enemies, it seems like there's no condition on mercy. And so we have to deal with this reality of what are the valid limits to mercy? Are there any valid limits to mercy? You know? And so the first thing is, is putting a value or valuing unconditional mercy. And this, of course, is, there's a case that can be made for conditionless mercy or conditionless compassion. And much of the message last week made that case. The heart of God and thus the heart of His people is to be bent towards mercy. And so there are people here that would argue that we show mercy no matter what. It should be our first instinct. Their relationship to us as a neighbor or as a stranger or an enemy doesn't disqualify them at all. That was clear. And Jesus himself ministered to everyone. He preached to and he healed both Jew and Gentile, Arab or Roman, Greek or pagan. The Greeks were pagan, but in their mind, pagan. Uh, but... And you know, and we receive the gospel as enemies of God. Now, we were unable to repay Him, and God didn't have any condition of our ability to repay or to uh, Him in terms of offering His mercy to us. And so, if salvation was withheld from us until we became righteous, then it wouldn't be a gift, but it would be earned, and it would no longer be the gospel. And so, we have all of this example of how mercy starts off on this footing of being unconditional. And so, there is there is a lot of reason to value unconditional mercy. In fact, it's not easy to even talk biblically in terms of people deserving mercy because mercy is, by definition, undeserved. If a recipient earned or warranted mercy, then you can't really call it mercy anymore. And so it's hard biblically to even talk about mercy as being deserved. And so so last week and, and these realities that I talk about now, they make the case for unconditional mercy. But then what is the case for conditional mercy? And what is the, what is the cooperative or, or um, value of conditional mercy? You know, what is the, at the same time, the Bible teaches us that mercy and grace, once received, expects a response. And so we can't just look at this from one side or just one set of verses. We have to look at the whole counsel of Scripture. And with regard to our example of refugees, for instance, and I used many verses last week, the scripture and the law goes on to say that the sojourners who were being shown all this mercy that God extended through his people to them, they were actually required to keep the Sabbath, it says in Exodus 20.10. And that those sojourners and their travelers were expected to observe the feast of unleavened bread in Deuteronomy 16. And that they were to bring appropriate sacrifice for sin of ignorance uh, to the temple in Numbers 15. And they were to observe the Day of Atonement in Leviticus 16. And they were to obey all the commandments and statutes and judgments of God's law, it says in Exodus 12, 49. And so, like those born in the land, in other words, the mercy of Israel expected a response from those who were sojourning. And so God said, these people who are traveling in your land, these Moabites who are refugees from the, from the destroyer and the oppressor, you are to be the shade to them. You are to show them mercy. You are to pour out compassion upon them. But he does say that the sojourner and the traveler in the land of Israel is to regard the laws of the land of Israel. So, so there is a response expected to the mercy. And if we were to look 
in general, more in general to the grace of God and his expectation. You know, for instance, God expects people to receive the common grace of his providing the sun and the earth and rain to do something with it. The fourth commandment in the Ten Commandments says, six days will you labor, and then on the seventh day you'll rest. But God says, for six days you'll labor. I mean, I've provided the sun, I've provided the land, I've provided the rain, I've provided nature to you, but I'm expecting a response to my grace. There will be a labor that's requested of you. And in the same way, in his law, we saw last week to provide for the poor. God provided in his law. He said, there's a means in which I'm going to provide for the poor in my nation. He said, I'm going to tell my people that they are to leave the edges of their field and they are to leave uh, you know, uh, the margins of their fields for people to glean in so that the, the widow and the traveler will have some sort of supply. But then we see that in practice in the book of Ruth that she actually had to get out of bed in the morning and go and get the ears of grain in the field in order to receive that blessing. And so God has provided compassion, God has provided mercy, but he's not provided mercy and compassion without expecting a response. And so there's a response that comes with the mercy and compassion. The book of Proverbs tells us that a lazy person is to look for the ant for inspiration. Right? Proverbs 6, 6 to 8 says, Go to the ant, you sluggard, and consider its ways and be wise. It has no commander, no overseer, no ruler, and yet it stores its provisions in summer and gathers food at its harvest. And so we have these scriptures here in, in the Word as well that show us that there's, there's a response expected to the grace that God has provided. And again, there's many verses that we could turn to. I could go to dozens and dozens of different verses to gain a greater understanding of God's expectation of cooperation and response to mercy. But we can gain a great deal of wisdom and understanding by seeing how the Holy Spirit guided the apostles in the early church as well to manage their mercy ministries. So we have the law of God, we have the expectation of God, we have the heart of God that he, that he shows grace and he shows mercy, expecting a response. And then we have in the early church the teaching of the apostles in how they were guided in applying what the Holy Spirit was teaching them. And so the Apostle Paul, as we roll forward into the New Testament, he's writing to the early church and he gets right to the heart of the conditions of mercy in valuing the conditions of mercy being extended. He says in 2 Thessalonians, If anyone is not willing to work, let him not eat. For we hear that some among you walk in idleness. And then he goes on to say that if a person won't follow this instruction, have nothing to do with them, so that they are embarrassed by their behavior. Not that Paul means that we should treat them like an enemy, but so that they are taught a lesson, so that they learn from their behavior that they take it as a serious warning from a brother or sister that the way that they're acting in response to the grace and the mercy of the church is not appropriate. And then later on, when Paul is writing and giving instructions to his young apprentice Timothy, who had oversight over a bunch of different churches that they had planted together, Paul gives instructions on how the mercy of the church, or, or how the mercy of the church or the church people are to manage their mercy ministries wisely. And so he says to, to Timothy in 1 Timothy 5, He says, give proper honor to those widows who are really in need. But if a widow has children or grandchildren, these should learn, first of all, to put their religion into practice by caring for their own family and so repairing their parents and grandparents, for this is pleasing to God. And then Paul goes on to describe how a widow is really in need. 
More than just not having any other family to support her, she must be beyond the age of being able to work and not simply idle. And she must not be living in pleasure, which usually means depending on a string of different relationships for emotional and financial support, or just generally living selfishly. And so Paul insists that the the widow should be active in good deeds in order to be put on the rolls for support from the church. And just as the Thessalonians verse could apply to a woman just as easily as a man, and so these verses here in uh, 1 Timothy can, can apply to a man as easily as a woman. I don't want, I don't want the gender that Paul used to uh, distract you, okay? They're just examples that he uses. So women are not to be idle either, and widowers are to be truly in need as well. Clearly, Paul's instruction on how mercy is shown by the church is very specific here. Paul is going into very specific detail about how the church should show mercy to people and what response the church should expect to see where mercy is given. We can't avoid the reality that there were conditions placed around the mercy that was shown to both men and women, and neither were to be undeserving or rather unresponsive to the ministry offered them. The men or the women who received help should be striving to find work or they should be uh, to be trying to live properly and performing good deeds themselves. In other words, the objects of mercy should themselves be merciful people. So you see, we're, we're sort of working here. I can see you got your thinking caps on. You're thinking about what I'm saying. This is what theology is. It's not scary. It's just, it's just looking at who God is and what he says and, and developing a theology of mercy by looking at scripture. Theology is not scary. Everybody's a theologian. We all do this. But we have to look at what God, who God is and what God teaches us in order to develop so that we at Lakeside have a theology of mercy that's sound. So that we have a theology of mercy that aligns with scripture and that we are showing compassion and showing mercy in a way that God would have us do it. So that we are taking these, um, again I say competing values, they're not competing, these cooperative values of mercy and compassion, but also wisdom and stewardship, and putting them together. And that's what, that's what, that's what we're trying to do this morning, is, is put that second piece in the puzzle of the theology of mercy together. And so God extends mercy to the undeserving, but he expects a response. We have the common grace of life and breath and sun and rain and earth, but God expects us to cooperate in his grace with him and work the land and be productive and be good citizens and and take advantage of the mercy that he has shown and provided. And Christians are to extend mercy without condition, right? When God extends mercy, he doesn't worry about whether it's a friend or an enemy, whether it's a righteous or an unrighteous. God extends mercy without condition. A neighbor, a stranger, an enemy, all are objects of mercy. But there is an expectation that Christian mercy proceeds with cooperation in that mercy. You see, so our mercy is unconditional in its expression, but it expects cooperation. It expects a response, just as God's does. We should serve the displaced and the alienated and the marginalized and the poor in such a way that they cooperate with and respond to our mercy. And in this way, the ministry of mercy again mirrors the ministry of the gospel. Because really, the, 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 the ministries of mercy are really just a reflection of the ministry of the reality of the gospel. 
The good news of the gospel is offered freely to anyone. There is no barrier to receiving the grace and the good news of the gospel. But the gospel, even as it proceeds from God, expects a response. That once we hear the gospel, once we receive the gospel, once we understand the grace of God, God expects us to cooperate in the gospel. We're expected to respond to it. It doesn't go forward without expecting a response. The very nature of good news is that it is meant to be responded to. And so we can say it maybe this way, that God's mercy comes to us without conditions, but it does not proceed without our cooperation. And so I would say, so our mercy then is not conditional on the merit of the recipient, but our mercy must expect a response, or it's not really love. The heartfelt values of unconditional or conditional mercy are not actually competing values, but I think they're complementary values, each guiding the other. The first instinct of our heart should be the first instinct of God's heart, which is to show mercy and show compassion to those who are displaced and alienated and marginalized. But beyond that first strong, compelling instinct, the next instinct needs to be that we are looking for a response to our mercy. Because if people simply receive compassion and receive mercy and they just take and take and take and they remain unchanged, then is it really love to only enable them to continue without change? And just as we learned last week that there is a warning to us if we don't have an open heart of mercy, because God warned us, he warned Israel in that passage that if they were not to have an open heart of mercy, then he would be displeased. And there's a warning to us if we don't have an open heart of mercy. But at the same time, there's also a warning for those that reject mercy. If you don't work, you won't eat, says Paul. If you abuse the mercy of the church, it won't be offered. Galatians 6, 7-8 to says very clearly, God will not be mocked. You are to sow good and reap good, and if you sow selfishness, you will... Not receive mercy, but corruption, Paul says in Galatians. And there's a limit God gives his people in their mercy to others, even in the gospel. Matthew 7, 6 says, as he's talking about his disciples, there is a point where even the mercy and the grace of the gospel reaches a limit, and he says, do not throw your pearls to the pigs. They will just trample them and turn on you. And so Jesus is saying, if people are not going to respond properly to the compassion and the mercy and the grace that is given them, then it must be preserved for those who will respond to it. And so you can see now that our theology of mercy has taken on a lot more depth. I mean, it was really simple before. It says, God is compassionate, so we're going to go be compassionate. Done. But it's not that simple, is it? Right? And that's what we've been wrestling with with this refugee situation. That's what the world's been wrestling with, is that it isn't that simple. That there are lots of people deserving of mercy. And there isn't necessarily unlimited mercy to go around. And there are those people who reject mercy and who, who, who prey upon the compassion of the church and end up trampling it and remain unchanged even when mercy is shown to them. And so our theology of mercy has to take on more depth than just a simplistic show mercy to everyone and don't ask any questions. There is an open-eyed wisdom that has to be applied to our open-hearted mercy. So we have open-hearted mercy, but we go into it with open-eyed wisdom as well. And I think the limit of our mercy is that 
Mercy limits mercy. There's a point where mercy is no longer merciful if there's no cooperation or response to the mercy. As we continue to pour compassion and resources into a family or into a person and they refuse to respond and they don't want to change and they're not going to alter their habits, they're not going to get help, they're, they're just going to continue on in the same habits, in the same situation that they were in before, no matter how much compassion we show them, it's no longer compassion. There's a point when mercy stops being mercy unless we change it, unless we change how we're helping them. As Henry Sloshberg writes in his book, Idols for Destruction, he says, serving the poor is a euphemism for destroying the poor, unless it includes the intention of seeing the poor becoming capable of serving others. We can actually destroy people by showing them mercy if we don't expect any change from them. We will simply enable their behavior and their lifestyle. So what are then true limitations to mercy? I want to get practical here quickly at the end. And I want to put forth some, maybe some false limitations on mercy to consider because I don't want you to come away from this thinking I've got a whole list of reasons as to why the church doesn't show mercy or show compassion. In fact, we have a lot of, of false limitations that we put on mercy. And the, the first one is the limit of extreme destitution. Right? We have this idea that we have to wait till people are really destitute before we help them. You know, as long as they're a little bit okay, then they don't get any help. There's people that need more help. And so we wait until the very end until we offer them any help. Well, a great Reformed pastor and Puritan, Jonathan Edwards, speaks to this. And he says, Our love towards our neighbor should not work in the same manner, and should it not work and express itself in the same manner as our love towards ourselves. Aren't we to love our neighbor as ourselves? And so... Do we wait until we are absolutely destitute before we take action to help ourselves? No. Right? As soon as we have a need, as soon as there is an area in our life that needs something, we immediately start to take action to rectify it. When my fridge is empty, I don't wait several days before acting. If I don't have a job, I don't, I don't sit around for a month waiting to look for a new one. I start looking for a new one every day. I go out grocery shopping immediately. If we do that for ourselves, shouldn't we do the same thing for our neighbor whose fridge is empty or who is not employed? Do we put as much emphasis in seeking their good as seeking our own? If we're not going to wait to help ourselves, we shouldn't wait to help our others. And so there's no limit to the destitution before our mercy gets triggered. There's another limit that we put in place, which is, but what if, what if it was sin? What if, what if the displacement and the alienation and the poverty resulted from sin? Are we supposed to help people who are suffering because of sin? And then we look at our theology of mercy and we see that we are to offer mercy expecting cooperation and response. That it doesn't matter how they got into the situation that they were in, just like it didn't matter how we got into the situation we were in when God came to us with his gospel and his mercy, we're to extend compassion and we're to extend mercy no matter how they got there. But we are going to expect a response. And if they don't cooperate and respond, then really it's no longer merciful to enable their self-destruction. But what if somebody benefits while we're actually helping someone else, right? Like you get into this situation, this is where it gets complex and you've got to work through this theology of mercy, right? What, what, if there's a, what if there's a husband or a wife who refuses to change their behavior, but they have kids, and so the church wants to give help to the family for the sake of the children who are innocent, but the father or the mother is going to benefit from that? Or should we withhold mercy because they're going to benefit, you know, on the side? And again, we have to answer that question, no, I don't believe so. 
And Jonathan Edwards again writes, if, if they continue in the same course, if they continue to be unrepentant, that does not excuse us from charity to their families that are innocent. And so the sins of the parent, I think we can look at it this way, the sins of the parent are already affecting the children. The, the sins of the parent or the spouse are already affecting the family, perhaps to several generations. But the role of the church is to show mercy and, not, and do our part to redeem a hurtful and an evil situation for good. If the one doing evil might benefit to some degree from it, we don't withhold our opportunity and we don't withhold our chance to try to redeem that good. And lastly, another false limitation which is maybe hits closer to home is our own selfishness. That we have to be careful that when we go into these situations where there's opportunity to show mercy or show compassion, that we're not limiting our compassion and we're not limiting our mercy because of our own selfishness. That we're not judging others as being undeserving because of our own hard-heartedness. That really the reality is in us determining the other person is undeserving is just because we don't want to help or we don't want to pay the price of helping. And so we look at someone and we say, well, you know what, I've done enough for them, or they, they've done all, I've done all this for them, and, and uh, it seems like it's just it's going to go on and on, and it's really, I'm just tired of helping that person, and so I, I don't think they're deserving anymore. Well, the fact that you're tired doesn't mean they're undeserving, right? Or maybe it's you're expecting a personal thank you, right? Like, I've done all this, and they don't show me any gratitude. Well, if you're doing things expecting a thanks, that's not mercy. You're looking for payment, <laughs> And so we have to be careful that we don't limit our mercy based on our own selfishness, that we're expecting some kind of return or we're just tired of giving. Right? That, that, that the limit of mercy can only be mercy. The only thing that limits mercy is mercy. In essence, what I'm saying is, is we must never fully withdraw mercy, but that there are times when we must change the form of our mercy. Our mercy must be shaped to meet the root cause of the displacement or the alienation or the poverty. And so sometimes our mercy is not just necessarily helping them in the way that we've always helped them before. There's a point when we say, you know what, I've helped you. I've helped you now for several weeks. I've helped you now for several months. The church has helped you over the course of, uh, of a while now. But it, things aren't changing. And so we're not withdrawing our mercy, but we're going to change the form of our mercy. And our mercy is going to take a new shape because really we have to find a form of mercy that elicits your cooperation, that elicits your response, and so that we can actually show you true love in seeing a change in your life. And so our mercy may take the shape of supplying counseling or addiction help, or it may mean working out a household budget with people and holding them to it. It it may even be creating opportunities for service and participation in the church. All these different things can be mercy and can be compassion. But our job is not easy. A theology of mercy is not simplistic. And every situation is so unique and different. And we start from the position of having the compassionate heart that God has, But then we have to add to that initial desire to show compassion, wisdom, and love, and stewardship. And when we link that together with our open-handed generosity, we start to form a fuller picture of what a ministry of mercy looks like. It is God's heart of compassion, but it's joined with wisdom and love and clear-eyed, open-eyed looking at the situation. And that links to our generosity and what we offer. The end goal here for Lakeside, for us as Christians, 
is that we have a mercy ministry, that we have a theology of ministry of mercy that informs our ministries that face the complexities of poverty and alienation with open hearts and open eyes and open hands. I would love for that to be sort of the the picture of mercy at Lakeside, that we are open-hearted, but that we have wisdom and, and stewardship that comes along with our open hearts. We've got open eyes as we go into these situations, and we deal with every situation uniquely, the person and the family that's involved. But the end result of that open heart and those open eyes is an open-handed generosity. That our mercy, our compassion, what we show as a church, as people, is that we're open-handed. That that we are available to people. That we are generous in the way we treat people. And that the only limit to mercy is mercy. That our mercy is never really withdrawn. It only changes form in order to elicit a response from them a response to the gospel, and a response that means change in their lives. Because that's true love, is to see people changed by the ministry of mercy and not remain in the bondage that they're in. Let's pray. Father God, I thank you that your word is complete, that you don't just give us an anecdote and tell us to get by but you unpack your heart for us to see, that you reveal yourself, you unfold your, your compassion and your mercy, but at the same time, Lord, that you show us your wisdom and you teach us how to have the value of mercy and the value of stewardship uh, work together, that we are to be wise in how we treat people that we are not just indiscriminate, but that we are seeking their benefit and their change. That mercy doesn't only have to take one form, but in fact should take the form that elicits cooperation and response. And Lord, it's, it's hard for us as fallen people to internalize all of this. You know, in some ways theology is easy, and in other ways it's hard. You teach us, but then we have to act on it. And so Lord, that's our prayer, my prayer for Lakeside, that we would take your word, we would take what you revealed, you take the wisdom that through your Holy Spirit you've blessed us with to be able to see what our mercy ministry should be like, and then we would apply it in our lives, that we would respond to the Syrian refugee situation with your heart and with your wisdom and with open-handedness, that we would respond to people in our own community in the same way, that we would... uh, react to the political and social realities of our government and of our society in a way that reflects you. So that when people are talking to us at Tim Hortons or we're having conversation around the supper table or we're posting something on Facebook, all of those conversations, all of those things that come out of us would just be saturated with your open-heartedness and your wisdom and your open-handedness that we would speak and act and, and teach in such a way that people would see that there is a better way, that mercy and compassion have a way to affect change. And it's not blind, but it's thoughtful. And it elicits cooperation and it elicits a response. Father, give us a maturity in our mercy ministries that reflects your compassion rightly. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.